Welcome to the Time Machine Talk Show. Here's your host, Miss Ziegler. Hey there, awesome AP students. This is Miss Ziegler back with the Time Machine Talk Show. On this episode, we'll be starting on page 324 of your Strayer Ways of the World textbook, and we'll be discussing the Indian Ocean trade. Your reading question that goes with this is question six. What lay behind the flourishing of Indian Ocean commerce in the post-classical millennium? So let's get started. It says, if the Silk Roads linked Eurasian societies by land, sea-based trade routes likewise connected distant peoples all across the Eastern Hemisphere. For example, since the days of the Phoenicians, Greeks, and Romans, the Mediterranean Sea had been an avenue of maritime commerce throughout the region, a pattern that continued during the third wave era. Maritime is just anything to do with water and being on the water. The Italian city of Venice emerged by 1000 CE as a major center of that commercial network, with its ships, merchants, active in the Mediterranean and Black Seas as well as the Atlantic coast, much of its wealth derived from the control of expensive and profitable imported goods from Asia, many of which came up the Red Sea through the Egyptian port of Alexandria. There, Venetian merchants picked up those goods and resold them throughout the Mediterranean basin. This type of transregional exchange linked the maritime commerce of the Mediterranean Sea to the much larger and more extensive network of seaborne trade in the Indian Ocean Basin. So basically they're talking about how the Mediterranean is linked to the Indian Ocean, and you can see this in the map below on page 325. And if you look at that map, you can see how merchants would go up the Red Sea and then they would have a link to Egypt. Now, they would have to cross over land to get to the port of Alexandria in Egypt, but that's where the Italians would come and pick it up. And so it was a much faster way versus going all the way around Africa or to go across land. So let's go on. Until the creation of a genuinely global oceanic system of trade after 1500, the Indian Ocean represented the world's largest sea-based system of communication and exchange, stretching from southern China to eastern Africa. Like the Silk Roads, this transoceanic trade, the Sea Roads, also grew out of the vast environmental and cultural diversities of the region. The desire for various goods not available at home, such as porcelain from China, spices from the islands of Southeast Asia, cotton goods and pepper from India, ivory and gold from East African coast, provided incentives for Indian Ocean commerce. Transportation costs were lower on the sea roads than on the silk roads because ships could accommodate larger and heavier cargoes than camels. This meant that the sea roads could eventually carry more bulk goods and products destined for a mass market, such as textiles, pepper, timber, rice, sugar, wheat, whereas the Silk Roads were limited largely to luxury goods for the few. What made Indian Ocean commerce possible were the monsoons, alternating wind currents that blew predictably eastward during the summer months and westward during the winter. 
An understanding of monsoons and a gradually accumulating technology of shipbuilding and oceanic navigation drew on the ingenuity of many peoples, Chinese, Malays, Indians, Arabs, Swahilis, and others. Collectively, they made an interlocked human world joined by the common highway of the Indian Ocean. But this world of Indian Ocean commerce did not occur between entire regions and certainly not between countries. Even though historians sometimes write about India, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, or East Africa as a matter of shorthand or convenience, it operated rather across an archipelago of towns whose merchants often had more in common than one another than with the people of their own hinterlands. These urban centers strung out around the entire Indian Ocean Basin, provided the nodes of this widespread commercial network. So weaving the web of an Indian Ocean world. The world of Indian Ocean commerce was long in the making, dating back to the time of the first civilization. Seaborne trade via the Persian Gulf between ancient Mesopotamia and the Indus River Valley civilization is reflected in an archaeological finds in both places. Perhaps the still undeciphered Indian writing system was stimulated by Sumerian cuneiform. The ancient Egyptians and later the Phoenicians likewise traded down the Red Sea, exchanging their manufactured goods for gold, ivory, frankincense, and slaves from the coast of Ethiopia, Somalia, and southern Arabia. These ventures mostly hugged the coast and took place over short distances. Malay sailors, however, were an exception to this rule. Speaking Austronesian languages, they jumped off from the islands of present-day Indonesia during the first millennium BCE and made their way in double outrigger canoes across thousands of miles of open ocean to the East African island of Madagascar. There they introduced their language and their crops, bananas, coconuts, and coca yams, which soon spread to the mainland where they greatly enriched the diets of African peoples. Also finding its way to the continent was a Malayo-Polynesian xylophone, which is still played in parts of Africa today. So you can see that trade was pretty early in the River Valley civilizations. Moving on, the tempo of Indian Ocean commerce picked up in the era of the second wave civilizations during the early centuries of the Common Era, as mariners learned how to ride the monsoons. Various technological innovations also facilitated Indian Ocean trade. Improvements in sails, new kinds of ships called junks with stern post rudders and keels for greater stability, new means of calculating latitudes such as the astrolabe, and the evolving versions of the magnetic needle or compass. So those three uh, things of technology you might want to remember. One is called the junk. It is a ship uh, or a type of boat. And you can look up a picture of that if you would like. You can also put down the astrolabe and the compass. Around the time of Christ, the Greek geographer Strabo reported that great fleets from the Roman Empire are sent as far as India, whence, uh, whence the most valuable cargoes are brought back to Egypt and thence exported again to other places. Merchants from the Roman world, mostly Greeks, Syrians, and Jews, established a settlement in southern India and along the East African coast. The introduction of Christianity into both Aksum and Kerala in southern India testifies to the long-term cultural impact of that trade. In the eastern Indian Ocean and the South Chinese Sea, Southeast 
Asian merchants likewise generated a growing commerce, and by 100 CE, Chinese traders had reached India. The fulcrum of this growing commercial network lay in India itself. Its ports bulged with goods from both west and east, as illustrated in the snapshot above. Its merchants were in touch with Southeast Asia by the 1st century CE, and settled communities of Indian traders appeared along or throughout the Indian Ocean Basin and as far away as Alexandria and Egypt. Indian cultural practices such as Hinduism and Buddhism, as well as South Asian political ideas, began to take root in Southeast Asia. In the era of third wave civilizations, between 500 and 1500, two major processes changed the landscape of the Afro-Eurasian world and wove the web of an Indian exchange even more densely than before. One was the economic and political revival of China, some four centuries after the collapse of the Han Dynasty, especially during the Tang and Song Dynasties. China reestablished an effective and unified state, which actively encouraged maritime trade. Furthermore, the impressive growth of the Chinese economy sent Chinese products pouring into the circuits of the Indian Ocean commerce, while providing a vast and attractive market for Indian and Southeast Asian goods. Chinese technological innovations, such as larger ships and the magnetic compass, likewise added to the momentum of commercial growth. So for each one of these paragraphs, I would just put down a couple of bullet points like Indian Ocean trade during the River Valley civilizations and then inter, uh, Indian Ocean trade during the second wave civilizations, put down a couple of bullet points. And then for this paragraph, put down a couple of bullet points for what happens during the third wave civilizations. And you can put the dates too because it puts the date for the third wave civilization between 500 and 1500 and... Uh, let's see, the second wave, you can just put down uh, during the early centuries of the Common Era. And then for the River Valley civilizations, it would be during the first millennium BCE. So just get a couple of bullet points from each one of those paragraphs about what the Indian Ocean trade route was like, because you could use that if you were asked for a change of the Indian Ocean trade route. The next paragraph continues to talk about the third wave civilization, so you can put this under your bullet point for that. It says, a second transformation in the world of Indian Ocean commerce involved the sudden rise of Islam in the 7th century CE and its subsequent spread across much of Afro-Eurasia world. Unlike Confucian culture, which was quite suspicious of merchants, Islam was friendly to commercial life. The Prophet Muhammad himself had been a trader. The creation of the Arab Empire stretching from the Atlantic Ocean through the Mediterranean Basin and all the way to India brought together in a single political system an immense range of economies and cultural traditions and provided a vast arena for the energies of Muslim traders. Those energies greatly intensified commercial activity in the Indian Ocean Basin. Middle Eastern gold and silver flowed into southern India to purchase pepper, pearls, textiles, and gemstones. Muslims, merchants, and sailors, as well as Jews and Christians living within the Islamic world, established communities of traders from East Africa to the South China coast. Efforts to reclaim wasteland in Mesopotamia to produce sugar and dates for export stimulated a slave trade from East Africa, which landed thousands of Africans in southern Iraq to work on plantations and in salt mines under horrendous conditions. 
A massive 15-year revolt among these slaves badly disrupted the Islamic Abbasid Empire before that rebellion was brutally crushed. Beyond these specific outcomes, the expansion of Islam gave rise to an international maritime culture by 1,000, shared by individuals living in the widely separated port cities around the Indian Ocean. The immense prestige, power, and prosperity of the Islamic world stimulated widespread conversion, which in turn facilitated commercial transactions. Even those who did not convert to Islam, such as Buddhist rulers in Burma, nonetheless regarded it as commercially useful to assume Muslim names. Thus was created a maritime Silk Road, a commercial and informa uh, informational network of unparalleled proportions. After 1000, the culture of this network was increasingly Islamic. So your question that you were supposed to answer with that section was what lay behind the flourishing of Indian Ocean commerce in the post classical millennium. And you could put down that the two reasons are that um, China's revival in the Tang and Song dynasties, and then put down some bullet points underneath that, and then also the rise of Islam, and use your information to put down some bullet points about that. Okay, your next question is, in what ways did Indian influence register in Southeast Asia? So you're going to start... In, on page 328, it says, under sea roads as a catalyst for change, Southeast Asia. Oceanic commerce transformed all of its participants in one way or another, but nowhere more than in Southeast Asia and East Africa at opposite ends of the Indian Ocean network. In both regions, trade stimulated political change as ambitious or aspiring rulers used the wealth derived from commerce to construct larger and more centrally governed states or cities. Both areas likewise experienced cultural change as local people were attracted to foreign religious ideas from Confucian, Hindu, Buddhist, and Islamic sources. As on the Silk Roads, trade was a conduit for culture. Okay, so you need to put both of those things down. Political change, because rulers used the money to govern their states, and cultural change through religion. Located between the major civilizations of China and India, Southeast Asia was situated by geography to play an important role in the evolving world of Indian Ocean commerce. During the Third Wave Era, a series of cities and states or kingdoms emerged on both the islands and mainland of Southeast Asia, representing a new civilization in this vast region. That process paralleled a similar development of new civilizations in East and West Africa, Japan, Russia, and Western Europe in what was an Afro-Eurasian phenomenon. In Southeast Asia, many of these new societies were stimulated and decisively shaped by their interaction with the sea-based trade of the Indian Ocean. The case of Srivijaya, Srivijaya? <laughs> there we go, illustrates the connection between commerce and state building. When Malay sailors, long active in the waters around Southeast Asia, opened an all-sea route between India and China through the Straits of Malacca around 350 CE, the many small ports along the Malay Peninsula and the coast of Sumatra began to compete intensely to attract the growing number of traders and travelers making their way through the Straits. 
From the competition emerged the melee kingdom of that long word that's hard to say, which dominated this critical choke point of Indian Ocean trade from 670 to 1025. A number of factors, Srivijaya's plentiful supply of gold, its access to the source of highly sought after spices such as cloves, nutmeg, and mace, and the taxes levied on passing ships provided resources to attract supporters to fund an embryotic bureaucracy. That means like a newborn government. And to create the military and naval forces that brought some security to the area. The inland states on mainland of Southeast Asia, whose economies were based more on domestically produced rice than international trade, nonetheless participated in commerce of the region. The state of Funan, which flourished during the first six centuries of the Common Era in what is now southern Vietnam and eastern Cambodia, hosted merchants from both India and China. Archaeologists have found Roman coins as well as trade goods from Persia, Central Asia, and Arabia in the ruins of its ancient cities. The Kumar Kingdom of Angkor exported exotic forest products, receiving in return Chinese and Indian handicrafts, which welcoming a considerable community of Chinese merchants. Traders from Champa in what is now central and southern Vietnam operated in China java and elsewhere practicing piracy when trade dried up champa's efforts to control the trade between china and southeast asia provoked warfare with its commercial rivals beyond the exchange of goods commercial connections served at, to spread elements of indian culture across much of southeast asia even as vietnam was incorporated into the chinese sphere of influence so your first thing that you want to put down about the indian influence the, in Southeast Asia was trade in general, just trading products. The second thing would be the spread of culture. And then here are some examples. Indian alphabets such as Sanskrit and Pallava were used to write uh, numbers of Southeast Asian languages. Indian artistic forms provided models for Southeast Asia, sculpture and architecture. While the Indian epic Ramanyana became widely popular across the region. So put down some of those influences on culture. Then political influences next. Politically, Southeast Asian rulers and elites found attractive the Indian belief that leaders were god kings, perhaps reincarnations of Buddha or the Hindu deity Shiva, while the idea of karma conveyed legitimacy to the rich and powerful based on their moral behavior in earlier lives. Uh, Sharivajaya monarchs, for example, employed Indians as advisors, clerks, or officials and assigned Sanskrit titles to their subordinates. The capital of Palembang was a cosmopolitan place where even the parrots were said to speak four languages. While these rulers drew in on indigenous beliefs that chiefs possessed magical powers and were responsible for the prosperity of their people, they also made use of imported Indian political ideas and Buddhist religious concepts, which provided a higher level of magic for rulers, as well as the prestige of association with Indian civilization. So indigenous beliefs means what they believed as natives before any outside influence came. All right, let's go on. It says they also sponsored the creation of images of the Buddha and various Buddhavidas 
whose faces resembled those of deceased kings and were inscribed with traditional curses against people who would destroy them. Srivijaya grew into a major center of Buddhist observance and teaching, attracting thousands of monks and students from throughout the Buddhist world. The 7th century Chinese monk Yijing was so impressed that he advised Buddhist monks headed for India to study first in Srivijaya for several years. So it kind of becomes the center of Buddhism. Elsewhere, as well, elements of Indian culture took hold in Southeast Asia. Here's some more examples that you can bullet point. The Saldriya Kingdom in central Java, an agriculturally rich region closely allied with Srivijaya, mounted a massive building program between the 8th and 10th centuries featuring Hindu temples and Buddhist monuments. The most famous known as Borobudur is an enormous mountain-shaped structure of 10 levels with a three-mile walkway and an elaborate carvings illustrating the spiritual journey from ignorance and illusion to full enlightenment. And you can see it on this page. There's a picture above. The largest Buddhist monument anywhere in the world, it is nonetheless a distinctly Javanese creation whose card figures have Javanese features and whose scenes are clearly set in Java, not India. Its shape resonated with an ancient Southeast Asian veneration of mountains as sacred places and an abode or home of ancestral spirits. Borobudur represents the process of Buddhism becoming culturally grounded in a new place. So definitely put down the name Borobudur because it's basically Buddhism becoming Southeast Asian and being influenced by that. Hinduism, too, though not an explicitly missionary religion, found a place in Southeast Asia. It was well-rooted in the Champa Kingdom, for example, where Shiva was worshipped. Cows were honored and phallic imagery was prominent. But it was in the prosperous, powerful Angar Kingdom of the 12th century CE that Hinduism found its most stunning architectural expression in the temple complex known as Angkar Wat. The largest religious structure in the pre-modern world, it sought to express a Hindu understanding of the cosmos, centered on a mythical Mount Muro, the home of the gods in Hindu tradition. Later, it was used by Buddhists as well, with little sense of contradiction. To the west of Angkor, the state of Pagan likewise devoted enormous resources to shrines, temples, and libraries inspired by both Hindu and religious faith. This extensive Indian influence in Southeast Asia has led some scholars to speak of the Indianization of the region, similar perhaps to the earlier spread of Greek culture within the empires of Alexander the Great and Rome. In the case of Southeast Asia, however, no imperial control accompanied Indian cultural influence. It was a matter of voluntary borrowing by independent societies that found Indian tradition and practices useful and were free to adapt those ideas to their own needs and cultures. Traditional religious practices mixed with the imported faiths or existed alongside them with little conflict, and much that was distinctively Southeast Asian persisted despite influences from afar. In family life, for example, most Southeast Asian societies traced an individual's ancestries from both the mother and the father's line in contrast to India and China, where patrilineal descent was practiced. 
Furthermore, women had fewer restrictions and a greater role in public life than in the more patriarchal civilizations of both East and South Asia. They were generally able to own property together with their husbands and to initiate divorce. According to a Chinese visitor to Ankar, it is the women who are concerned with commerce. Women in Ankar also served as gladiators, warriors, members of palace staff, and as poets, artists, and religious teachers. Almost 1,800 realistically carved images of women decorate the temple complex of Angkor Wat. In neighboring Pagan, a 13th century Queen Pasa exercised extensive political and religious influence for some 40 years amid internal intrigue and external threats, while donating some of her lands and property to a Buddhist temple. Somewhat later, but also via Indian Ocean commerce, Islam too began to penetrate the Southeast Asia as the world of seaborne trade brought yet another cultural tradition to the region. So that very last paragraph that we just read after uh, the sentence about Alexander the Great, it talked about um, similarities and differences between China and India and Southeast Asia. So take a minute to break apart those similarities and differences into some bullet points for yourself and uh, pause this while you're doing that. Okay, our next reading question is, what was the role of Swahili civilization in the world of Indian Ocean commerce? So this next section is going to focus on East Africa. And it says, on the other side of the Indian Ocean, the transformative processes of long distance trade was likewise at work, giving rise to an East African civilization known as Swahili. Emerging in the eighth century CE, this civilization took shape as a set of commercial city-states stretching all along the East African coast from present-day Somalia to Mozambique. The earlier ancestors of the Swahili lived in small farming and fishing communities, spoke Bantu languages, and traded with the Arabian, Greek, and Roman merchants who occasionally visited the coast during the Second Wave era. But what stimulated the growth of Swahili cities was the far more extensive commercial life of Western Indian Ocean following the rise of Islam. As in Southeast Asia, local people and aspiring rulers found opportunity for wealth and power in the growing demand for East African products. Associated with an expanding Indian Ocean commerce, gold, ivory, quartz, leopard skins, and sometimes slaves acquired from interior societies, as well as iron and processed timber manufactured along the coast, found a ready market in Arabia, Persia, India, and beyond. At least one East Africa giraffe found its way to Bengal in northeastern India, and from there was sent on to China. In response to such commercial opportunities, an African merchant class developed. Villages turned into sizable towns, and clan chiefs became kings. A new civilization was in the making. Between 1000 and 1500, that civilization flourished along the coast, and it was a very different kind of society than the farming and pastoral cultures of East African interior. It was thoroughly urban, centered in cities of 15,000 to 18,000 people, such as Lamu, Mabasa, Kilwa, Sofala, and many others. Like the city-states of ancient Greece, each Swahili city was politically independent, generally governed by its own king, and in sharp competition with other cities. No imperial system or larger territorial states unified the world of the Swahili civilization, nor did any of them control a critical choke point of the trade, as Sarivajaya did for the Straits of Malacca. 
So Swahili cities were commercial centers that accumulated goods from the interior and exchanged them for the products of distant civilization, such as Chinese porcelain and silk, Persian rugs, and Indian cotton. While the transoceanic journeys occurred largely in Arab vessels, Swahili craft navigated the coastal waterways, uh, concentrating goods for shipment abroad. Swahili cities were class-stratified societies with sharp distinctions between a merchantile elite and commoners. So you can put down some of these items in your bullet points underneath that question. There were the, the Swahili cities were these big um, urban centers. They were run by kings. They exchanged goods from the interior of Africa with distant civilizations. Culturally is the next paragraph. It says, culturally as well as economically, Swahili civilizations participated in the larger Indian Ocean world. Arab, Indian, and Persian merchants were welcome visitors, and some settled permanently. Many ruling families of Swahili cities claimed Arab or Persian origins as a way of bolstering their prestige or their wealth and eliteness. Even while they dined from Chinese porcelain, and dressed in Indian cottons. The Swahili language widely spoken in East Africa today was grammatically an African tongue within the larger Bantu family of languages, but it was written in Arabic script and contained a number of Arabic loan words. A small bronze lion found in the Swahili city of Shanga and dating to about 1100 illustrates the distinctly cosmopolitan center of the Swahili culture. It depicted a clearly African lion, but it was created in a distinctly Indian artistic style and was made from melted down Chinese copper coins. So you can see cultural diffusion is definitely happening here. Furthermore, Swahili civilizations rapidly became Islamic. Introduced by Arab traders, Islam was voluntarily and widely adopted within the Swahili world. Like Buddhism in Southeast Asia, Islam linked Swahili cities to the larger Indian Ocean world, and these East African cities were soon dotted with substantial mosques. When Ibn Battuta, a widely traveled Arab scholar, merchant, and public official, visited the Swahili coast in the early 14th century, he found altogether Muslim societies in which religious leaders often spoke Arabic and all were eager to welcome a learned Islamic visitor. But these were African Muslims, not colonies of transplanted Arabs. The rulers, scholars, officials, and big merchants as well as the port workers, farmers, craftsmen, and slaves were dark-skinned people speaking African tongues in everyday life. So you can put down that Islam spread to Swahili civilization. And in the next paragraph, we're going to see some of the effects of that. It says, Islam sharply divided the Swahili cities from their African neighbors to the West, but neither the new religion nor Swahili cultures penetrated much beyond the coast until the 19th century. Economically, however, the coastal cities acted as intermediaries between the interior producers of valued goods and the Arab merchants, who carried them to distant markets particularly in the southern reaches of the Swahili world. This relationship extended the impact of Indian Ocean trade well into the African interior. Hundreds of miles inland between the Zambezi and Limpopo rivers lay rich sources of gold, which in demand for the Swahili coast. 
the emergence of a powerful state known as Great Zimbabwe seems clearly connected to the growing trade in gold to the coast as well as to the wealth embodied in its large herds of cattle. At its peak between 1250 and 1350, Great Zimbabwe had the resources and the labor power to construct huge stone enclosures entirely without mortar with walls 16 feet thick and 32 feet tall. It must have been an astonishing sight, writes a recent historian, for the subordinate chiefs and kings who would have come there to seek favors at court. Here in the interior of southeastern Africa lay yet another example of the reach of transforming power of the Indian Ocean commerce. So your next question is to find similarities and differences between the Indian Ocean trade route and the Silk Road. So pause this podcast while you do that. You need to find three each. Okay, so now that you've done that, I want you to focus on this question. In 2008, the World History Continuity and Change Over Time essay was on commerce in the Indian Ocean region. Now, the 2008 essays were a little bit different than the ones that we write today, but um, not so much that we can't look at this for an example. So the question was, analyze continuities and changes in the commercial life of the Indian Ocean region from 650 CE to 1750 CE. So the importance there is the dates. You do not want to talk about any changes or continuities before 650 CE or after 1750 CE. So I want you to pause this podcast and think about this. Can you find at least one continuity and two changes from that time period between 650 and 1750 CE? Pause the podcast, review your notes, and see if you can figure it out. Okay, now that you've done that, I want you to go to Google, and I want you to Google 2008 AP World History Change and Continuity of the Indian Ocean Trade Route. All right, 2008 AP World History Change and Continuity of the Indian Ocean Trade Route. Once you Google that, the first thing that should pop up is the AP World History 2008 Scoring Guide from the College Board. Click on that. And that will take you to some examples of this question. Now, the first thing that you're going to see when you open that up is the scoring guidelines. Okay, so this is what they were looking for in 2008. Like I said, the rubric is a little bit different, but the things that are similar are the thesis and the fact that you have to talk about continuity and change and you have to use historical evidence. So go past that first page. And the third page, it starts with an essay example. It's labeled 2A. So it says, when examining commerce in the Indian Ocean region from 650 CE to 1750 CE among traders, there were many changes in continuities. A significant continuity was the use of some trade routes because the traders and economic groups of the Indian Ocean Basin continued to use the Indian Ocean to export and import goods. A significant change was the increased involvement of European traders because over time they began to involve themselves more in the Indian Ocean Basin and began to colonize and undergo economic ambitions. Okay. So that is the thesis that this kid wrote for this essay. Now, when I have you guys write your essays, we have you do one continuity and two changes because uh, the rubric is a little bit more involved now than it was back at this time. But you'll see here only one continuity and one change. 
Now go down and she'll start talking about the significant continuity. It says a significant continuity was the use of the same trade routes because the traders and economic groups of the Indian Ocean Basin combined to use the Indian Ocean to export and import goods. For example, merchants and traders have constantly used the monsoon winds for getting to one place to another. They relied on the seasonal winds to transport their goods and themselves. In addition, many merchants and traders use the same trading ports and cities they have been using. Trading ports in East Africa has continued to be used to transport goods from the interior of Africa with merchants from India and other Pacific islands. Also, storehouses to store goods when merchants traveled from that area to another were still in use. These storehouses allowed merchants to travel to another area without worrying about their goods back home. Furthermore, the same goods were transported across the Indian Ocean. Gold and silver and other precious metals were transported to India where merchants transported textiles and I'm not sure what that says uh, from India to the East African coast. Globally, many other countries began to participate in the Indian Ocean trade over time, including Japan and Muslim merchants. They have been involving themselves more and more with commerce of the Indian Ocean Basin and eventually emerged as a major aspect of that region. If you scroll all the way down to the bottom, past these examples, it will tell you how this was graded. So that was 2A. So you're going to look at sample 2A. That person got an 8. And it says the thesis located in the first paragraph is specific in terms of continuity and change and addresses the time frame of the question, commerce, and the Indian Ocean region. So they got one point for their thesis. Continuity is addressed in the beginning of the second paragraph on the first page. And change is addressed in the first paragraph on the second page. So they got two points for that. And then evidence of continuity is located in the second paragraph on page one. And evidence of change is also found. So basically that information that I just read was the evidence that they were given points for. And then the analysis is included in the second paragraph where it talks about the storehouses. So um, they, were, they were able to get quite a few points for this. And because it's so specific, that's why they're getting these points. If this person would have just said, the Indian Ocean trade routes stayed the same because they were the same trading cities and they were these merchants traded the same goods, that wouldn't have gotten that person as many points because she was very, or he, she or he, was very specific in what they talked about here in this paragraph. Now if we read the change paragraph, scroll all the way back up to the example on page two, it says a significant change was the intense involvement of European traders and merchants because over time they began to involve themselves more in the Indian Ocean Basin and began to colonize and undergo economic ambitions. For example, European merchants and traders have begun to colonize and establish trading ports and cities throughout India, Africa, and the Pacific region. Also, the opium trade uh, with China allowed British merchants to earn a profit by producing the opium in India and transporting it in China for trade. So you can see that sh he or she is giving very specific examples here as well. All right, that's what I'm talking about when I'm telling you guys to be specific. Now, there are two more examples of essays. 2B got a score of 6 and 2C got a score of 2. So let's look at 2C and compare it. 
Here's the thesis. Indian Ocean commerce has always played a key role in trading throughout history. As time went on, easier ways to navigate and transport throughout the Indian Ocean became easier due to new technologies, although some things remained the same. Alright, so the problem there is that the thesis is attempted in the introduction and the conclusion, um, but it does not fully address the question. Okay, the essay asks for changes, specific changes, and specific continuities. And this person is saying that um, it has increased significantly over time and that um, then she attempts to say that technologies have changed, but it's just too vague. You need to like be specific on um, which technologies you're talking about. So that is why I keep preaching to you guys, be specific. So what I want you to do is try to practice this question about change over time, analyzing continuities and changes in the commercial life of the Indian Ocean region from 650 CE to 1750 CE. Do some bullet points on what changes and continuities you would talk about and um, what topics you would put in your sentences and what vocab you would put in your sentences. If you bring that to me, I will check it out for you, give you some feedback and possibly some extra credit. And if you're not in my class, I will try to work out some extra credit for you if you do this because it's great practice. And that wraps up this episode of the Time Machine Talk Show on the Indian Ocean Trade Route. As always, if you have any questions, please let me know. I'm available to help you. And thank you for listening. Beep. <phone rings>